right, church, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you ever forget your Bible um, or uh, don't have enough hands to carry in your Bible, we always have Bibles in the back or out in the lobby you can grab as well. I'd love for you to have God's Word in front of you. We'll have some of the scriptures up on the screen. And the preschoolers, they've already been dismissed. They're quick. Good. Romans chapter 7. Well, I'm sure you guys have heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger before, right? Uh, it's a phrase. It's been around for a while. You know, it's, it's actually, I, f- I found it was, it's been around since 400 BC. It was written in, in some plays back then. Although at that time, it was, uh, the phrase was, don't kill the messenger, right? This was before guns and things like that. So it was, don't kill the messenger. And, uh, you know, back then, you'd have two warring armies who would uh, send messengers to one another to, uh, you know, work out treaties or send messages, communication that they needed. And, and uh, oftentimes, you know, if the, if the message was not a good message that that other army wanted to hear, uh, they unfortunately would take out their anger on the messenger, all right? And so this, this phrase has been around for a long time. I used to really understand this when I worked at the hospital, and I would have to sometimes bring bad news or a bad diagnosis to someone. Uh, it would, they would sometimes, people would become very angry and want to lash out, and uh, even though I was just the messenger, right? Um, and you learn, there's been a lot in hospital world that's prepared me for pastoral ministry. And so, uh, you know, I think many times I could probably preach in a shirt that said, don't shoot the messenger, uh, just to remind us all of what's, what's happening. But you've, you've probably experienced this before as well, right? You've probably had times where you're just thinking, hey, don't, don't shoot the messenger, right? And so that's what this, the title of this morning's sermon is going to be. It's going to be, don't shoot the messenger. And we're going to title it that because we will see that when the law of God exposes sin in the human heart, that it can be painful, we don't initially like it, and oftentimes we want to lash out against God's law and against God's word and against God's messengers. We want to shoot the messenger. We want to take the law of God and just set it aside. Right? This is, our, this is our kind of initial natural propensity. We, we don't always like it, and so we just want to be done with it, set it aside. We'll make our own law, right? Which is inevitably what happens when you dismiss the law of God. You make your own law, and we do this instead of receiving the, God's law, instead of delighting in it, as painful as it might be, so that we might enjoy Christ and our hearts be healed. You'll remember last week we talked about the three aspects of God's law, God's moral law, God's ceremonial law, and the civil law. And this morning when I'm referencing the law, I'm primarily speaking of the moral law of God. That even if it brings us the bad news that we've already heard in Romans, that none are righteous, no, not one. Even if God's word and God's law brings us that news, even if it exposes the sin that our hands have done and our hearts have harbored, even if this news hurts and does not make us feel good in the moment, the law of God must not be set aside. And we shouldn't shoot the messenger because the message it brings to us is vitally important for life and salvation and happiness in this life and in the life to come. Last week, you'll remember, we started into Romans 7, and we learned that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we now have a new relationship with the law. 
right? Just like we died to sin, now we have died to the law, which that doesn't mean that the sin and law aren't still a part of our lives, right? To die to sin means that we've died to the ruling and reigning power of sin. And in a similar way, to die to the law means we have died to the condemning power and penalty of being lawbreakers. And therefore, we learn that the law is no longer our Lord, but instead the Lord Jesus is our love, and this is now our new motivation to delight in his law. And so let me say that again to recap from last week, right? The law is no longer our Lord, the Lord Jesus is our love, and this is now our motivation to delight in his law. We do not set the law of God aside. We do not have to shoot the messenger. We do not have to to, uh, get rid of it and set it aside. No, the law of God reveals to us the holy nature and character of God, and it shows us how to love him more. And the law of God helps expose the sin that still remains in our hearts and our lives. And that's, where, that's, the, that's the emphasis on the law of God that the verses will take us to this morning, the aspect of the law that helps expose the sin that still remains in our hearts and lives. This morning, we will see that first, the law diagnoses sin in our lives. Second, we'll see that the law stirs up sin in our lives. And thirdly, we'll see that the law magnifies sin in our lives, all right? The law diagnoses sin, the law stirs up sin, and the law magnifies sin, all right? So let's pray. We'll ask for the Lord's help, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into Romans 7. Father, we do come before you asking for your help to proclaim your word and to receive your word. Father, we do ask that we would be in awe of you this morning. That our understanding of the law and its role in our lives, Lord, would encourage us to trust and love Jesus more and more. And so, God, I ask that you would help us, Lord, as we maybe hear a a difficult passage, a passage, difficult and painful aspect of what your law does to us in our hearts as it exposes our sin. And Lord, I ask that you would enable us to, to take what's exposed and to lay it at the foot of the cross, cross and trust you, Lord Jesus, to do with it uh, what you will do with it. Father, at, at many times it can feel like there are many rising against us in the world. It feels like at times there are many saying that there, there is no salvation for us in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield around us. You are our glory and the lifter of our heads. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lift some heads this morning. We know that when you, we cry aloud to you, O oh God, that you hear us and you answer us. We know that last night we laid down and slept, and this morning we woke up for you, God, sustained us. We praise you this morning and ask, Lord, that you would arise and pour out a blessing upon us as we receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 7, verse 7. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. All right, so Paul has been teaching us that we've died to sin and that we've died to the law. And now he's clarifying that those two things are not the same thing. Right? He asks, is the law sin? And he answers with another strongly worded, by no means, no way. And then he goes into explaining why the law should not be set aside. And he explains that if it had not been for the law, he wouldn't have known what sin was. The law defines and diagnoses the problem. Right? The law is like the MRI that helps diagnose the problem that you might otherwise not have even known that was there. And it's interesting that Paul goes to the commandment, you shall not covet, right? Because that was the one that most plainly addressed a matter of the heart. Coveting is a matter of the heart. I mean, you shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not steal. All of those you could convince yourselves that you've kept until Jesus comes along and directs it at the heart and really shows us the true, deeper meaning of those things. But even before Jesus teaches on it, you shall not covet, plainly is addressing a matter of the heart. And if it wasn't for the law of God, we wouldn't know that coveting is sinful, we wouldn't know that it's not good for us to wallow in discontentment, lusting after things that are not yours to the point when we don't get them, we are bitter and despairing over it. We wouldn't have known that it was sin that still dwells in our hearts, that wants to covet, that wants things that other people have. We wouldn't have known this if not for the law of God. And so the law is diagnosing and defining the sin that still remains in our hearts. When you open up your word, when you open up uh, and when you come to worship, when you hear the word preached over you, there's an aspect of what's happening is that, that the word is diagnosing the sin that still needs to be dealt with in your heart. I mean, we can't take things to the Lord to be healed. We can't take things to the Lord to confess and repent from if we don't even know that they're there, right? And this is, this is something even in, uh, even in medicine and in counseling circles and even in, in, in places of people that are not Christians, they understand this, that it's actually self-awareness, becoming aware of some things that actually helps lead to healing, that actually helps lead to solving the problem. And this is why a good conversation with a pastor or a friend or someone who's asking you good probing questions, that's helpful because they're helping you become aware of what's going on in your head and your heart. This is oftentimes the first step to healing. The first step in the ER to heal a wound is to expose the wound. You have to find the wound. You have to expose it so that it can be treated and healed. Once you are aware of something, then the process towards healing can start. And in a similar way, God uses the law to lovingly and graciously diagnose and expose the sin that is in our hearts. Otherwise, we wouldn't know it was there. There was a tribe in New Guinea, and the first time they heard the story of Jesus, uh, they thought that Judas was the hero of the story. Right now, what's going on with their moral compass there? What's, what's happening there? 
Well, right, the law of God, the word of God had not been taught in their land before. And so where, wherever the law of God isn't happening, we, we, make up our, we make our own laws, right? We make our own, we come to our own conclusions and, and, and morals and virtues. And that tribe, they saw deception as a virtue. That was like a really virtuous thing to be able to deceive people. Right? That was how they lived. That was how they understood things to be good. And so what they would do in this tribe is that they would lure in an outsider uh, into the tribe, and they would deceptively treat them really well. Right? They would feed them. They would treat them like a king. The person would, would make them, uh, they would make the, the, the person feel like they were friends and close. And once they had successfully deceived them and fattened them up, I mean, they were cannibals, so you know what happens after that. And that's a good illustration of just, in general, what sin does to people. It's a death by deception. All right, it's a death by deception. But, but they hear the story of Jesus, and they think Judas must be the hero because he's the best at deception, right? But then they hear the law of God. Then they hear the word of God. Then God's word defines and diagnoses the sin that is in their hearts and lives. And then they see their need for a savior. They see that deception is not a virtue, but instead it needs to be confessed and turned from. And so if, if we as Christians, if we, if we shoot the messenger, so to speak, if we, if we get rid of and set aside the law of God, what happens is that then our sin is never sanctified. What happens is then that we start defining our own law of what is right and good and wrong, and things just get really messy and out of whack really quick. But ultimately, it's dangerous because sin is never sanctified. Sin is never dealt with and because we don't even recognize it as sin. Now, now instead of recognizing it as sin, we, we, we call it a, a personality disorder, right? We call it uh, just the way we are, how we were raised. We call it just that's the, how the family we were raised in acted and was. Or now it's the, the pastor's fault or the church's fault and they're preaching hate and they're preaching absolute truth and things like this. And so if the law of God is set aside, listen, the sad thing is that sin then is never diagnosed and the Savior is never trusted in and sin is never sanctified and misery and death continue and spread and death by deception proliferates. And then we'll get really good at numbing the pain and misery of the sinful growth in our lives, but we don't actually heal the problem because we have not allowed the law of God to diagnose the problem. The law of God diagnoses the sin that still remains in our hearts. But Paul doesn't say that the law just diagnoses sin. He says something even, even a little crazier. He says that it actually stirs it up. He says that it provokes the sin that still remains in our heart. Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, does the, law, does the law really come and poke the sleeping bear? Look, look for yourself, Romans 7, verse 8. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me 
all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. That word that the ESV translates opportunity was a word that was typically used in a, in a military context. It was a word that would be used in describing a military base, a base of operations for a mission, right? It was the starting point that would then allow further advance. And so because of the presence of sin still remaining in our hearts, the law stirs up sin or provokes sin because sin takes the law and sees it as an opportunity for further advance, all right? For example, I want everyone to look at this, uh, we'll, we'll pick this door up here, this front door, this front, the front wooden door. Everyone look at that door and just consider that door for a moment, right? I mean, it's a good looking door. Uh, it, does, it does its job, right? All right, so you guys have some thoughts about the door, right? All right, I'm going to put up a sign on the door that says, do not enter. All right, what's happening inside of you right now? Now, some of you, if you're honest, you're like, I wasn't thinking about going through that door, but now I really want to go through that door, right? There, there's a part of you that if someone says, don't do this, it's like, I, no, I want to do that now. I wasn't thinking it before, but now I'm like, I really want to go through that door, right? And at the end of the day, I don't care. You can go through that door, all right? But, but that, that is sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, right? What happens when someone tells you, don't move, right? Like something's on you or something's happening. Like when someone tells you not to move, like everything in you is like, I got to move. I got to move. Something's happening. I got to move. When you tell a child not to cross a line, something in them wants to now cross that line. I was reading a story about a hotel in Texas that's right on the Gulf of Mexico, and they had a sign that said, no fishing from the balcony. And lo and behold, it was the most popular fishing spot around, right? Everyone is like, yeah, I, wasn't, I wouldn't have thought of that, but let's do it. Let's fish from the balcony. And they tried everything they could to prevent it, like gave warnings and fines and did all these punishments and things like that. Nothing worked until someone's like, let's just take the sign down. And they took the sign down, and the fishing stopped. <laughs> right? There's, there's something in us. You, under, you, you see this. There's something in us that sin seizes an opportunity to pounce on. And I love that the Proverbs, they acknowledge this reality as well, about the human condition and about the presence of sin in our hearts. And in Proverbs 9, 17, it, it, just, it, it, it doesn't beat around the bush. It says this is a, an actual thing. It says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, this is not instructing us to go steal water, all right? But it's acknowledging the fact that there is, like, because of the presence of sin still in our hearts, there can be a fleeting temporary pleasure that comes from breaking God's law, from doing something you know you shouldn't do. When the law of God comes to a heart where the presence of sin still remains in it, it stirs it up it provokes it even more. But you know, even in that, there's a lot of grace from God. We don't like that. We don't like it because we're like a mouse who a man purchased as food for a snake. 
The man dropped the mouse into the cage with the snake, and the mouse quickly realizes that he has a problem. But the snake is currently asleep, and so the mouse decides what he's going to do is he's going to cover the snake with all the sawdust chips that are in the cage. And so he works, he's scrambling, he's covering up the snake so you can't see the snake at all. And now finally, the snake is covered by all the sawdust chips, and now the mouse just rests in the corner thinking that he's solved the problem. But we know that the mouse has not solved the problem, right? What the mouse ultimately needs is either for the snake to be killed or the mouse needs to run to the hand of his master and be rescued from the situation that he's in. And you see, this is our same problem. We think that if we just cover up our sin and put it out of sight and out of mind that our problem has been dealt with. But God is so good and loving and gracious to us. He gives us his law. He sends us pastors and parents and brothers and sisters and the Holy Spirit to instruct us in his law. And his law stirs sin up in us so that we see that it still does need to be dealt with. God allows us to be a little sleep-deprived and a little stressed, and then he instructs us to be patient. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, I see. There's still, there's still sin present in my heart. I need to continue to take this to Christ. God allows our friends to get promotions and raises and go on better vacations than us, and then he instructs us not to covet And we're like, oh, okay, yes, I see, I see. The presence of sin still remains. There's things I still need to confess and turn from and trust the Lord for his forgiveness and to grant me repentance and faith. You see, God is good and gracious to us to at times allow the law to stir up sin in us so that we still see that we need to run to our master's hand to be rescued. Right? Church people, we love just kind of covering the snake with the sawdust, right? Everything's good here. But then real life happens, and the Holy Spirit convicts and cuts deep, and the The sin is now stirred up in us, and we see, no, we still have plenty to confess and turn from and trust Christ to rescue us from. But listen, church, God's not diagnosing our sin and stirring up our sin just to torture us. He's doing it to rescue us and heal us from sin that is so deceptive And one of the ways that sin deceives us is to have us believe that sin is a small thing and we should take it lightly. And so this is why the law of God is so holy and so righteous and so good. It's that not only does it diagnose sin, not only does it stir up sin, but it also magnifies and matures sin so that it can be healed. Look back at Romans 7, verse 9, and I'll explain that a little bit more, what it looks like for the law to to magnify and mature sin so that it can be definitively dealt with. Romans 7, verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Now here's where some of the controversial parts of Romans 7 start to come into play, and we'll get more into it next week. Uh, But the question arises in verse 9 with people debating over who is the I that Paul is referring to, right? When he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, some people think he's exclusively referring to Adam, that Adam would be the only one in history that was truly alive apart from the law. And so some people think he's speaking as, as, as Adam. Others think that he's referring to the people of Israel before they received the law on uh, Mount Sinai. But others, and this is where I would fall, others think that this is Paul referring to his own experience. And that this is a common human experience, and certainly Adam and the Israelites and all of us can, to some degree or another, relate with Paul's experience here as well. And so that's where I would find it best to understand the I here in in verse 9. Paul is speaking of personal experience, and we can all certainly relate to this as well. All of us at some point have been in a state of ignorance, but then the commandment came. And you've probably even experienced this before. Even if you've been walking with the Lord for years and years, you've probably probably had times where you've read a verse or a chapter of the Bible maybe a hundred times, and the Holy Spirit never really hit you with it until this one day. And you read something or you heard something, and then the Holy Spirit comes and the commandment comes, right? That experience, like, yeah, I've read this commandment over and over, but today... It came, it came, and it hit me, and it cut to my heart, and it diagnosed sin that you didn't even know was there, and it stirred it up even a little bit as you kind of tried to cover it over or kind of blame others for it, right? It stirred it up a little so that you would see only running to your Savior would actually save you and heal you. And you see, what has happened in that moment is that the law of God has magnified your sin, as verse 13 says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's what's happened there. The Holy Spirit has come, a commandment has come, has cut deep to your heart. It has magnified sin that's maybe been there your entire life, but now God has put the magnifying glass on it. He's exposed it. He's shown it to you so that sin might be shown to be what it truly is, and that is sin. Now here for a moment, let's, let's talk about the grace of God and the wisdom of God in regards to how the law of God comes to us and magnifies our sin. God magnifies our sin in such a gracious and a wise way. I mean, what what an awful experience it it would have been. Even though we know that he's paid the penalty for all of our sin, even though we know we've been released from the power of all of our sin, 
Like, what if he magnified and dropped on us all of our sin that we need to be sanctified from right on the spot? God, in his grace, he magnifies our sin in his timing with patience and grace. There was sin maybe that we've had that he hadn't put under the microscope until now, maybe even just this morning. And as he's magnifying it and shown it to be what it truly is, sin, now it's time to take it to him and trust him with it. There's also a wisdom component into how God's law magnifies sin in our life. And here's what I mean. Look at, back at verse 13. In Romans 7, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Other translations say exceedingly sinful. You see, there's an aspect of God's wisdom that seems to know that at times, sin needs to be matured and developed so that it can be definitively dealt with in either judgment or redemption. And this is something I don't, I don't know if I can fully explain this to you this morning. I just want you to be in awe of God because of it this morning. All right? In Genesis 15, God is making a covenant with Abram And he's promising Abram the land that he's on, but he says that first his family is going to be servants in a distant land for 400 years. But then he says in Genesis 15, 16, he says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, not yet full. Which, which this whole passage of Genesis 15 blows my mind, that God perfectly knows the future, that everything he has purposed will come to pass, and he knows the hearts of people, and he knows the sin of the Amorites. And in his wisdom, for some reason, he's not going to cut off their sinning right away. He's going to let it go for another 400 years until it has come to the point where their sin might be shown to be sin, that their sin would be complete and full and shown to be exceedingly sinful. Like, what? Now, I I believe everything God does is right. And so I'm in awe of him here. And not only can we be in awe of him, but we can take comfort in this, we can take comfort in the fact when we see God allowing sin and when we see that God is allowing the breaking of his law to continue, this is not God being naive. This is not God being ignorant. This is not God being complacent. This is not God not being powerful enough to do something about it. It's not that God doesn't care. But God is allowing sin to continue in his wisdom to either be definitively dealt with with either judgment or redemption. 
He's a gracious and he's a wise God. And so God in his grace, he doesn't, for us personally, he doesn't convict us all at once of every single sin that still remains in our heart. No, God in his wisdom has allowed some sin to continue to maturity so that it can be definitively dealt with in judgment or redemption. There was once a guy who came into the ER and he had what looked like was like a volcano on his, on his leg. Uh, and so I assumed it was an abscess or an infection, something going on that, that, uh, that we needed to deal with. And so I numbed it up, and I cut it open, and I've got the hemostats, and I'm expecting to, for there to be pus and blood, and there's nothing coming out. And, uh, and I realized I probably shouldn't have said pus and blood for some of you. I'm sorry. But I'm feeling around the wound, right? And, and I, don't, I don't feel that, but instead I, I feel like a clinking sound. And I get, I get the hemostats on it, and I pull it out, and it's a, a fragment of a bullet that's there. And I was like, so what's, what's going on with this? He's like, funny story. Uh, Ten years ago, I was shot in the leg, and I had to have major surgery. A lot of repair was done, but the surgeon in his wisdom said that there was part of a bullet that was in a position that would have been too dangerous and too risky to go after in that moment, and so he was just going to let it be, and that it would probably be fine there, or my body would, would heal, or whatever like that, or you know whatever uh, would happen. And so it was the wisdom of the surgeon that said, hey, you know what? We're going to leave this for now. All right? Not that it's not going to be healed. Not that it's not going to be dealt with. But in this moment, we're going to leave it for right now. And there I was, 10 years later, watching his body literally expel this fragment of bullet from his body. And I just happened to be there to kind of just take it out. It was already falling out of his body. And I gave him a high five, and we went our separate ways. It was great. You see, God and his wise timing does not deal with all the sin that is in us all at once. What happens is it takes time and it takes persistently going to his word and being around his people. And after years and years, he's bringing more and more things to the surface. And a fellow brother or sister comes along and gets the joy of saying, hey, let's get rid of this. It's time. Right? God has brought this to the surface. This does not need to be in your life. Let's get rid of it. And isn't that a joyous event where we can be with one another? God's maybe been tilling the soil, working on someone for years and years, and now he's brought it to the surface through circumstances or teaching, through the law coming and convicting. And now we get to the joy together, confess this to God and say, hey, this does not, this does not be, need to be a part of your life any longer. The law of God magnifies and matures sin so that it can be healed. So that it can be healed. And God does this graciously, and he does this wisely, and he does this patiently. And we need God to magnify sin, right? We need God to put our sin under the magnifying glass because sin is so deceitful, right? It's a word we see in this passage. We've already talked a little bit about deceit, but sin is so deceitful. It leads to death by deceit. And, and what's even more sad is that, that sin deceives us through the law, right? It sees the law as an opportunity to even deceive us even more. And so I want to leave you with a few ways that sin deceives us through the law. First way that it does this 
is by telling us that the pursuit of holiness and happiness are two separate endeavors. All right, Sin deceives us through the law by telling us that the pursuit of holiness and happiness are two separate endeavors. I mean, isn't this the, the temptation that we have when we're presented with the opportunity to sin? It's, it's, we, we think there's going to be pleasure there. And admittedly, there is some fleeting pleasure there, but there's not going to be a lasting and deep joy and happiness. And so we have to be convinced, church, that the pursuit of holiness and happiness are not two different paths. They are one and the same. Men, like, like there, men, there is a happiness and joy that comes from working hard at your job as unto the Lord, of being faithful to your wife, of training up your kids, of serving the church, of loving your neighbor, and, and doing that for day after day and year after year. There is a deep joy and happiness that comes from that, that the guy who took the quick fix will never know about that. And you're going to miss out on lasting, real, true, deep happiness and joy if you think that holiness and happiness are two separate pursuits. They are not. Sin is deceptive, though. Sin also deceives us through the law by convincing us that we can separate out our lives into the secular and spiritual realms. Right? I'll live by the law of God in this realm of life, but not in this realm. I'll live by the law of God in my public life, but not my private life. I'll live by the law of God on Sundays, but not Mondays through Saturdays. I'll, I'll, like The law of God is holy, righteous, and good, and it is holy, righteous, and good for all aspects of your life. Sin also deceives us through the law, thirdly, by making us think that external obedience alone pleases God. Don't fall into this deception, church people. That external obedience alone pleases God. Church, he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. This is why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps directing the law of God to our hearts. He doesn't want the law to be our Lord. He is our Lord, wants to be our love, and he wants our hearts. He wants that to be the motivating factor to delight and follow his law. External obedience alone does not please the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And so there is, not a, there is not a method of externally living that will please Him that is apart from faith in Him, from loving and trusting Him. Right? This, is, this is why it cannot just appear on the surface as if you are going through the motions of being a Christian. You must be doing and, and living obediently by faith in him as you love and trust him. Right? Doing the, the right things with the wrong heart is a dangerous thing. We cannot just call people to external obedience. We must also call them to faith in Christ. Right? There is a way to live that looks like you are following Jesus, but in fact you are not trusting him at all. So don't let sin deceive you through the law. 
Fourthly, sin deceives us through the law. We've talked about this a little bit already. Sin deceives us through the law by convincing us that we can take sin lightly. It's not that bad. I can handle it on my own. Everyone else has sin too. I can manage it. I mean, I don't want to be legalistic about things, right? When God speaks of sin, he never speaks of it as being something that can, you can just manage. He speaks of it as being like crouching by you, ready to devour you. But you must rule it over it. And here's, here's ultimately why it's a, it's a big deal to think of sin lightly. It's a quote from Spurgeon. He says, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Right? If you never preach sin, if you never preach the law of God and how we have transgressed the law of God, then Jesus can become our kind of the next guru, right? He can be a good teacher. He can be our our life coach. He can offer some good advice. And our love for the Savior grows cold and we don't run to him. We don't trust him. We don't go to him with all of our lives and our hearts and the things that are going on because we've taken too, we thought too lightly of sin. We've thought that we've successfully dealt with the problem by maybe covering it up, keeping it out of sight. But do not let sin deceive you through the law by convincing us that we can take sin lightly. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Church, our sin is so serious. The condition of the human heart was so dire that not only did we shoot the messenger, we crucified him. The word of God, God himself put on flesh and came and he diagnosed the sin that was in our hearts. He provoked it and stirred it up. He magnified it, and we crucified him. But listen, he did this as our perfect substitute. He was the perfect law keeper who came and died for law breakers. For those whose faith is in Christ, if you are trusting in him today, he has kept and obeyed the law on your behalf. And you you need to remind yourself of this, all right? I know we're talking about the law, talking about sin, talking about conviction, sin getting exposed. But listen, that all makes us run to Christ and trust Christ. You need to, though, remember and remind yourself this, that Christ has kept and obeyed the law on your behalf. Do not leave this room without really believing that. Because if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you to go and start feeling over these things. Conviction, yes, but not condemnation. He has kept and obeyed the law on your behalf. He paid the penalty for all your sin and law breaking. He has released you from the power of sin over you. In Christ, you have died to the condemning power of the law. God no longer condemns those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we go and we delight in the law, but there is no condemnation awaiting us. Plenty of conviction, yeah. 
but it'll be for our good and God's glory. It'll stir up in us a greater love for Christ and for one another. It'll make us keep running to him every day and trusting him. The presence of sin still remains, and God is no longer condemning us, but he is cutting us with his commands like a good and wise surgeon so that we would be healed. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he describes the interpreter's house. And the parlor of the house was completely covered with dust. And, uh, and, and a man comes into the parlor and takes a broom and just starts to sweep all the dust. Not mop, he's sweeping. Christian and the others in the room, they begin to choke from all just the great clouds of dust that are being stirred up all over the place. The more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became to the point where they felt like, I can't even breathe in here. And the interpreter then ordered a maid to come in and sprinkle the room with water with which the dust was quickly washed away. Interpreter explained to Christian that the parlor represented the heart of a man, that the dust was sin, that the man with the broom was the law, and the maid with the water was the gospel. His point was that what the law can do with sin is to expose it and stir it up, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wash it away. Hear these words from Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That should be more meaningful to us as we study Romans 7. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, church, you see, the law is holy, righteous, and good. That is what God's word says. We need to say it. We need to believe it. We need to proclaim it. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But, but, even though the law is holy, it cannot make you holy. And even though the law is righteous, it cannot make you righteous. And even though the law is good, it cannot make you good. You see, the law diagnoses so that you would seek real healing in Christ. The law stirs up so that the sweet water of the gospel could wash away. The law magnifies so that Christ can definitively deal with and remove sin from your life. In order, church, that you might love him and delight him and glorify him and enjoy him more and more. In Christ now, we are holy and righteous, and good. And so we do not set the law aside. We do not shoot the messenger, for it is the law who has led us to Christ. And when we are loving and trusting and enjoying Christ, he frees us to now be able to say genuinely, gratefully, and joyfully these words from Psalm 19 that I read over you at the start of the service, and I want you to listen to once again. It is the law who has led us to Christ, and when we are loving and trusting and enjoying Christ, he frees us to now be able to say genuinely, gratefully, and joyfully, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray.